Hello, and thanks for listening to the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. I'm Rob Fields. I'm the CMO and Senior Vice President for Population Health at Mount Sinai Health Partners. And I have the pleasure of being here with my own primary care physician, Margaret Kern Stanley, here uh, on the Upper East Side. Um, thanks for joining us, Margaret. Thank you for having me. So, um, I, as we were discussing and preparing for this, uh, you know, you are the first person that we're interviewing that is a frontline provider and is particularly an independent mm-hmm. provider in our network. And I think it's important to hear the voice of folks that are seeing patients every day and trying to figure it out. So, first, I think. We're curious a little bit about how you came to be here and practice medicine here. What, what brought you into this work? So when I was a little girl, about eight years old, my grandmother was diagnosed with lung cancer. And I said, oh, I'm going to be a doctor because I'm going to cure lung cancer. Um, that's nowhere where I am now, but that was led yeah. me to medicine. Um, I also grew up in a family where they were um, of service-oriented people, and so it seemed like a natural fit. Um, and they encouraged me to do whatever I dreamed to do. Um, then I went on, so I went to, to school for pre-med, and after um, my undergraduate, I did a year of service in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps with a family mm. physician in Oakland. Oh, wow. And it was actually the first time I ever met a family physician. Mm-hmm. I grew up with a pediatrician, and I don't even think my parents had a doctor, so <laughs> I didn't really, um, so I didn't really know what a family physician was, but I worked alongside one in Oakland serving uh, the Native Americans who had been relocated there um, during the 60s. And it was a free clinic um, that served the underserved in East Oakland. So that's when I realized that there was something called family medicine out there. And so then I applied to medical school and saw Stony Brook, which really highlighted family medicine. And when I interviewed at Mount Sinai, (laughs) I was encouraged to do internal medicine and pediatrics. And while I respect people who do that. It is not family medicine. Right. Um, so I went to Stony Brook and then did my residency at Beth Israel um, and became a family doctor. Yeah. Um, so we do exist in Manhattan, which is <laughs> exciting. Um, and that's... Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I know probably over time, I'm sure we'll interview folks that are internists mm-hmm. and pediatricians, but if we can talk a little bit about the family medicine mm-hmm. piece of that specifically, because yeah. I think um, you and I feel similarly about it. I'm a family doc as well, as you know. And uh, But come from North Carolina, there was a very strong base mm-hmm. of family medicine where I'm from, and that is less true in New York. Yes. And if you can describe a little bit more about your experience as a medical student, knowing that you wanted to do family medicine and, uh, you know, the, the pressures mm-hmm. that you kind of alluded to of, not choosing that. Yeah. Well, you know, even this, this is almost 25 years ago where yeah. they, it was not encouraged to do that. You right. were thought of, it wasn't going to be financially sound. It wasn't going to be respected. You're smarter than that. And you heard those yeah. things outright. Yeah. Um, and it, I have to say it was not true at Stony Brook. They really appreciated yeah. the value of f- what family medicine brought to the table. And so once we had a club and everything else so once i was there it was less um put down upon but even during rotations i remember doing my surgical rotation with an amazing surgeon and she said you should go into you know breast surgery this is a great field it's good for women i have children it's you know nine to five and you take care of women and you're so smart you know and it was still that same attitude that we were less yeah um Which is interesting because I think you have to be the smartest, but right. that's beside the point. Yeah. But anyway, it has so it was a struggle. Once it, 
Um, but then when during residency, again, you're in the hospital, you're in the tertiary care center in Manhattan, and again, there were certain programs in the residency who, again, looked down upon us. So mm -hmm. you were always feeling like you had to, you know, prove yourself. Prove yourself, yeah. Um, but at the same time, now we're 25 years later, and I think this is the way to be. This is the place to be. I think yeah. we're the, the, we are the force behind, you know, if we're going to have any healthcare change in this country. So yeah, I totally agree. I feel like we're, I'm in a good place. Yeah. Um, it was worth the battle. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I, I definitely want to come back to that because I think it's really relevant to the population health work we're doing. But you not only decided to kind of fight the odds mm -hmm. in, the north, in the Northeast and be a family doc, but ultimately ended up in private practice yep. <laughs> on the Upper East Side with the most expensive real estate in America. So yep. tell us about that <laughs> journey and decision. So I would say that is not what I would have thought I would have done. <laughs> um, I actually did my res I wanted to be in an urban area. Um, yeah. So I made a choice to do a residency. I chose urban family medicine as opposed to rural family sure. medicine or suburban. And I thought I would be work in the inner city um, in a clinic, maybe affiliated with the hospital or residency program. But I, um, so I had my first child in medical school, mm -hmm. uh, my second child at the end of my residency. And when I first looked for a job, I wanted to work part-time because I wanted to be with my family. So I did work for Catholic Medical Center of New mm -hmm. York, um, which is now non-existent because of uh, healthcare. Mergers and all Yeah, mergers things. and stuff like that. Um, so I worked... Um, I had a few jobs basically, but what I found was nobody really wanted a part-time doctor. I was the first to get accessed, right. which is exactly how I lost my job. Yeah. Um, I, they, I was working three days a week and I first had a, oh, then I had another child and then I had another child. Um, and then when I went back, they, as they closed clinics, the first to go was the person the who part working part-timers. Yeah. So I found myself without a job, and I went to the family medicine chapter of New York City was having, um, was reuniting. They hadn't really had a chapter mm -hmm. active. So I said, oh, let me Which go see. Which is pretty telling yes, by itself. <laughs> yes. So I decided I'd go and meet some of my preceptors from before and just tell them I'm out there again and looking for a job. Yeah. And I met a family physician who has a practice on the Upper East Side a block away from here, and he was losing his PA, and he said, he, he liked my smile in the elevator, and so he called me and offered me a job the next day. And he actually was interested in a part-time physician because he was losing his PA, and he thought financially it was the same. Right. I would, a full-time PA yeah. and a part-time physician would financially be pretty equivalent. Yeah. And so I started working for him. But again, he wanted at one point me to work full-time. That right. I was busy enough, I could make more money yeah. for him. So again, I was going to have to look for a new job, and I had my four kids. I had, I loved my job part time. It, yeah. it allowed me to do a lot of things. So that's when I decided to actually go out on my own, um, and then I could work for myself, and I could work as many hours I wanted, right. and just not, and I was financially just responsible for myself. What I found surprising to myself when I took the original job on the Upper East Side was that it was actually diverse. It was not taking care of 
just one group of people, that I was taking care of people that lived in the neighborhood, people whose employees lived in the neighborhood, their maids, their butlers, their um, nannies. Um, I took care of people that from the Bronx and Brooklyn who, this was right along the sixth train, and they said, well, if you're on Park Avenue, you have to be good. They didn't know, right. know anything else about me, but they wanted a doctor on Park Avenue. Yeah. So um, I took <laughs> care of artists. And, That's really interesting. Yeah, it, it's it, the most diverse group of people. Um, and what I also found in New York City is that people from the rest of the world think family doctors are, are the expectation and mm -hmm. are wonderful, so they seek out a family physician. So, and there's a lot of people from New York who, I mean, in New York who are not from New York. Right. So Midwesterners come looking for a family doctor. People from North Carolina are looking yeah. for a family doctor, and people from Europe and Africa that's and Asia, know. and every, that's what they know. So having people come see me was never an issue. Um, and the people, the variety that I saw from every background, from whether it be economic differences, um, race differences, cultural differences. So it was unbelievably more diverse than I expected. And so I enjoyed it. So I stayed and yeah. um, developed a pretty big practice. Yeah, which is, which is amazing. I remember uh, starting my own practice at a residency and being completely shocked by the uh, just the complexity and the feeling of over overwhelm mm -hmm. as it relates to things like overhead. You know, people I think patients don't because they don't have to understand. But we don't wouldn't expect them to understand the business parts of running a business. Right. But um, did any of that surprise you? Uh, do you still does it still surprise you some <laughs> of the challenges of running the business parts of this? Um, so some of it I feel like I went into foolishly. Yeah. Saying it'll take care of itself. Right. And some of it has. Mm -hmm. Some of it, I feel like business acuity, some of it, I came from a family that owns a family business. Mm -hmm. And so growing up at the dinner table, I heard about, and it was a small family business, right. I heard about those challenges of making payroll and mm -hmm. um, covering costs and making a living and supporting your family. And so there were things about that that really stuck to me. And I, I realized I had learned things that um, I hadn't known I had learned. Right. The other way that I've made it work is I have very little staff. Right. <laughs> so I, I do everything too. myself. Yeah. So while it makes a lot, of, it does mean a lot. I have to order my own vaccines and I have to make sure I have supplies. At the same time, I don't have to pay anyone. So I don't have to worry about, it, you know, if I don't make enough money to pay them. Right. Um, so that has helped in terms of feeling that load um, in one way, but obviously mm -hmm. it's increased the amount of work I've had to do in other sure. ways. Is it worth it to do it that way? Uh, absolutely. I think, well, I, yes, I still do it. <laughs> so I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't changed my ways yet. Um, but I always think it's evolving. There are times, some yeah. of it's become second nature. I know what to do. And um, I have an incredible staff, my limited staff, mm -hmm. um, the, especially my receptionist, can do almost anything she can she does things help me with like sort of quality reviews you know, she can do anything so being able to ask her to do those things um, has helped um, mm -hmm. and you know sort of relegating tasks to her you know if she leaves then I think I will close <laughs> I, I don't think I could do it without it, her. Yeah, it's, it's good to have some yeah. help but um, one of the things I know when I first met you that you spoke about that this model specifically 
and that patients often look for is, I mean, even myself as a patient here, you call me back and mm-hmm. you take my blood pressure. And so the time with you as a, as the physician mm-hmm. is from start to finish, it's with you. Yeah. Um, t- so as challenging as it might be in terms of having to order your own supplies mm-hmm. and all that stuff, tell me about the patient reaction to that experience, because that's different. It's a different. It's very different. And so the, it's, it's interesting because I see it, the patients who know me, who've been seeing me for 15 years, know what to expect. And mm-hmm. so they're not, um, they love it, but they're not, they don't remind me that it's different. Different, right. But when I see a new patient, especially if they've waited in my waiting room and they become a little upset by that, mm-hmm. when I bring them back and I do everything and then they realize that, in fact, from beginning to end, they've spent no more time in this office than had they gone somewhere else and been taken out by the medical assistant and then have their seen by a nurse and then seen by this person and waiting in an exam room for a while that every minute has been spent with me and what I've seen happen is that so then they they never complain again about waiting in a waiting room because Mm -hmm. they know once they're here and then once they're done they're done Mm -hmm. but also what has happened is that patients never tell you the whole story in the beginning and so as I'm taking their weight all of a sudden and that's the reminder that well first of all maybe their weight is too much or too little but it's again because I'm doing it it's a point of conversation the whole time uh, the whole time Mm -hmm. so I am doing things I'm multitasking the whole time um, and gaining so much information from them that I would have not have gained had this you know somebody someone else had weighed them you know I wouldn't have known that they had anxiety about this weight or that they you know so it's very or they always remember something else, you know, that they, you know, by the way, doc, I'm, I really came because of this. And I always have those moments because I'm doing everything, including drawing their blood and doing right. their EKG and um, yeah. taking their weight. Right. Um, the, so with all the other stuff you have mm-hmm. going on, tell me about the decision to join a network. I mean, you chose is a mm-hmm. I'm sure a purposeful decision to not be employed, uh, even though the trend is certainly moving for folks mm-hmm. to be employed. But it is certainly it's a in, in particular a New York phenomenon mm-hmm. to to join networks. I think. Um, but tell me about that. I and mean, was that from the beginning? You said well, in order to mm-hmm. do this, I'm going to have to join an IPA. Mm-hmm. Or, or tell me about that a little bit. No, I mean, truthfully, I joined hoping for better rates. Yeah. Um, and when I first joined, I joined Beth Israel before they merged, had started an IPA, and they actually didn't have one before. And we weren't getting better rates yet. Um, I think they did provide, they tried to provide some education and some help yeah. with us support, but they hadn't, um, they didn't have contracts with better rates yet. Then they merged with Mount Sinai, and we were all excited because we knew Mount Sinai had already had an IPA, and we were like, oh, we're going to just get their rates, but that didn't happen either. So there was a bit of a transition where, but I stuck it out because I could see where healthcare was going. I felt like it was my only option that mm-hmm. I was going to have to join the network somewhere, and so I'll stick it out until they develop this network. And then it did work in my favor because yeah. it did develop, yeah. and right. I am getting better rates. Um, and so definitely it was a financial incentive um, yeah. to do it. Um, and then, it's in, and I totally get it. I think in particular for those of you that are listening that are not in New York, I think mm-hmm. it's, that's a pretty common scenario because mm-hmm. in order to survive, frankly, it seems like that's almost necessary. 
Um, in addition to that, though, you mentioned you saw where healthcare was going. Mm-hmm. From from your perspective, where did you think it was going? I mean, I have my own opinions, but I'd like to hear from you. Like, where did you think it was going that would have prompted you to stick it out? Well, things like, um, re- I mean, Medicare was starting to not reimburse us if you did not. Sure. Right. Hit every benchmark. Right. Um, we were having to show what we were doing on a day-to-day basis and check off the right boxes mm-hmm. and or we wouldn't be paid. Mm-hmm. And so whether patient, and as a primary care physician, I knew I could be the front line, I could be that medical home, I could be whatever they were looking for, that that would be my job. So either I could fight the system and die out or join the Try system figure it out. and yeah. figure it out. Um, I mean, really where I see that, Healthcare is in such a crisis, and we really need a one-payer system, and yeah. we d- don't have that. Right. But I feel like if I the um, in terms of even the insurance companies and the healthcare, um, the Obamacare and Medicare, all of those are all asking for the same thing. Have you done your all your benchmarks? Which I knew I was doing, but I, now I needed to check the right boxes. Yeah so that they knew I was doing right. those things. There's an accountability um, aspect And so, yeah. I was, you know, in some ways you're hoping that an organization is going to help you make sure you're checking those boxes yeah. or support you in that. Right. Um, I think a lot of us that have worked on the other side, on the pop health side, and um, I, oh, I, I personally have always dreaded the being seen as the, the guy that makes you check all the boxes. But I know that's an important part, and often the way that's manifested mm-hmm. the most is I got to check this box because I think it is demonstrating the quality care that anyone provides is it is a part of the process, for better or for worse. We uh, always aspire to think about you know bigger issues. Mm-hmm. If we're thinking as a country, we're spending up to twenty percent of our GDP on healthcare. By almost every measure, we underperform mm-hmm. on, on as a in serving the population as a whole. Right. Certainly, if if you have means, you can get whatever you want to. But for the the majority, the majority. of the population, we we generally fail. Um, and so we hope to work towards a network that meets those goals mm-hmm. of reducing the cost and improving quality, improving the value. Uh, how, and and it's again, I'm encouraging you to be as transparent as possible. Where are we, Mount Sinai Health Partners, mm-hmm. in, in delivering that message? And where do you see healthcare, like, into, thinking about your peers, mm-hmm. do they get it? Do they see it that way? Do they see, like, that's a journey to improving value? Or is it really just about clicking boxes? And- I think it's both. I think okay. a lot of people, I feel like, are frustrated by the clicking boxes and aren't seeing the the real the big picture and seeing why are we clicking the boxes? What's, yeah. what's the goal? And are we just demonstrating this? Yeah. So I think that they're so lost in the clicking of the boxes that they are burning out. And, and that's where I feel like I've tried to be different. I've said, all right, I have to click these boxes. I find this incredibly frustrating, but this is <laughs> this bigger picture, and yeah. maybe we'll get there. Um, and maybe that's because I was younger when I, st- when I got into this. Mm-hmm. I mean, this whole th- crisis has started since the beginning for me, so right. I, I never knew another life, I feel yeah. like. Um, but where I feel like it's so frustrating is that as the the family doctor and the primary care doctor who I do believe is the central thing of this. Great, yeah. And while there's still no real connection between the specialists and, and me, mm-hmm. that I have my handful that are my, the physicians that I go to and they're wonderful and we can 
I can communicate, they'll see a patient. But as from the hospital perspective, they're not the ones in the hospital. Um, yeah. Part of the, yeah. the bigger organization. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, I had a patient in the ER at Mount Sinai, and when they get there, no one ever calls me that there's a patient there. No one ever sends me the reports. No one ever um, follows up with me that this has happened. At the same time, I'm getting a message saying you've got overutilization of the ER from this patient, but no one's ever told me this. Yeah. Um, and it's and then when I call a physician's office and say, can you know, we sent over a patient for a consult, they say we can't release those records. You need to sign a record of release from the patient, right. which isn't true. Which isn't true. Um, right. And they throw these, you know, things around. Now sometimes I think they're misinformed receptionists. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. Um, but. Who's going to inform them if, yeah, you know, right? Um, and I don't have time at that point to inform them. Yeah, and they and they frankly probably wouldn't listen. Anyway. Correct. So then, so what? What do we have to do? We have to call the patient. Can you please sign a record of release? Right. This is nonsense. It 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 creates this idea that it's actually the right way to do things. So we're yeah. teach we're teaching them. Yeah, this is okay. And interestingly enough, this organization hasn't changed in the th- years since I've been doing it right. with Mount Sinai. It has not changed one bit. Yep. It's a, it's an incredibly common complaint, not just with us, but across health systems. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole idea, there's a, a general resentment around the promise of electronic health records and all <laughs> the, we're supposed to have better coordinated care. And yeah. it's nonsense, right? It's, it's nonsense. It's a, I think it is far from meeting those goals and, and, and it in many ways has fractionated care. There's a lot of promise still. And I mm-hmm. think on the you know glass half full point of view, that, um, certainly it's not a technology problem, which I think is a good thing mm-hmm. in that these are solvable problems, but it, it is, the bad part is that it's much harder work than solving a technology yeah. problem. It's education, yeah. culture, that sort of thing. Um, if, you, if you think about uh, primary care in New York specifically, um, in the context in which you practice, um, what message would you want to deliver? Because I, I have a sense that there are a lot of things about New York, uh, everything from the uh, the fact that patients can self-refer mm-hmm. to any specialist they want to, independent of, of a relationship with a primary care physician. Um, the fact that, uh, and it's supported by the payers mm-hmm. in many instances. The fact that, as, as you mentioned, family medicine is still... It finding its way, mm-hmm. um, and even in primary care in general, not just family, but it's still finding its way. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks from New York don't necessarily recognize the value of primary care as much as we think they probably should. What message would you want to deliver to anyone listening about what, why what you do as a primary care physician is different and has value? Well, as we go to this more, all this technology and these even electronic medical records, that the one person, or the one thing that people are craving is relationships. They're, and that is the, this is the one place where you can have that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, in what I see is that's what people are missing. They don't have a relationship with their cardiologist or their endocrinologist, and this is the place, and that's what they're all missing. I mean, I, they're... And they're craving this from all aspects of their lives, that because we're so in tune to these, our iPhones and computers and we're not interacting the way we used to, um, people are missing that. And they don't, I don't know if they often know what they're missing um, and if they've never had a relationship 
they don't know that they could have one with mm-hmm. a doctor. But hands down, that's what patients, you know, when they finally come in the store and meet me or say, I, you know, I don't have a regular doctor and, you know, I went to CityMD three times and they said, you really right. should have a regular doctor. They, at first they didn't, you know, they just had a sore throat so they didn't really think about why it mattered. Um, but then all of a sudden something does happen and they realize it matters. And so that's when they're, it's like the light bulb goes off. And in young people, they absolutely don't see it. In people who've taken care of their parents, they remember their mother having yeah. a doctor who cared. And, and it's just really a relationship that, um, that is hearing them. And I know I can't solve many of their problems, but I can hear them um, and listen to them. And that's what people in general are craving. And so that's my message to them. And people ask me all the time, um, what does it mean that you're a family doctor? And I think that's what it means to me is that I am I am taking care of you in the context of something bigger than just you in terms of your family whether that be a real traditional family or that you have no family or that mm-hmm. your family is your doorman is the only person that really sees you and so that we're part of a community um, and really establishing that so that they are heard and then I can then bring them to the person that maybe can help them medically or emotionally or yeah. with food. Um, and so that's where I see, and I say, I want to say family doctor over primary care because I really think we're unique in yeah. that, in that I, while I may not take care of entire families all the time, I know that them having four children at home makes a difference in their health. In one day, yeah. Um, and yeah. I know that, that the fact that... Um, that they don't have a family impacts their health. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's where we can really play an important role. But I think we need it more than ever. We need to establish relationships with people again and, you know, make that our priority. Seems like a great place to stop. Um, <laughs> no, that was, that was wonderful. Um, thanks for taking the time, Margaret. Appreciate okay. it. Yeah. And thanks for listening to the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. If you have ideas for a future podcast, podcast, please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Thanks.